If only I had collected in the 1990s. If you're a Star Wars collector today, it's very likely that thought has crossed your mind hundreds of times. Maybe you grew up with the Kenner action figures of the late 70s and early 80s, released around the three films of the original trilogy. You might have even held on to your toys, or picked some new ones up if you were bitten by the nostalgic pangs when the first new and major Star Wars story, Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire, hit bookstores in 1991. Things were different then. We were only a few years removed from Return of the Jedi. Merchandise from Disney's Star Tours ride and Japan's George Lucas-themed show were interesting placeholders until Kenner revived the Power of the Force line in 1995. Lucasfilm released a special edition trilogy in theaters in 1997, 20 years after Star Wars first premiered. And at the end of the decade, Lucas introduced a new prequel trilogy to a new generation of fans. There were comics and toys, trading cards and video games, magazines and fan club offerings, and countless novels and stories. Star Wars returned to popular culture during the decade, and an eager audience was waiting for all of it. And sadly, many of us were not collectors then. Sure, we may have still owned our childhood toys, and we likely returned to Toys R Us and other retailers in search of the 1995 figures with the He-Man-like proportions. We probably saw the special editions in theaters with our loved ones and friends. And we probably played the video games and purchased something Star Wars related from the QVC shopping network on TV. But for most of us, collecting came years later. And yet there was a magazine that covered Star Wars in its many forms, including the movement toward collecting the memorabilia from the first 20 years. Star Wars Galaxy magazine contained columns devoted to how to collect, what was out there, and the prices of the time, all written by those who began collecting before any of us thought to do so. This is a look at some of the wonderful and fascinating information collectors like Steve Sansweet shared with readers within the pages of Star Wars Galaxy magazine. This is a snapshot of the collecting market in the mid-90s with prices that will make you wish you owned a time machine. This is a collection of stories and moments from a time long past, but which remain meaningful and relevant today. This is where the fun began. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. Will be with you always. 
As I explained in the previous episode, my dear friend Ryan Humblehorder was selling a complete set of Star Wars Galaxy magazines at the most recent Toy-Con show. And when I purchased a stack of Star Wars-related publications from him, he threw them in as a gift. I wanted to make sure his gesture of kindness did not go to waste, so each night, before I went to sleep, I read one issue. On every page, Star Wars Galaxy magazine offered a wealth of insight into the making of the original trilogy, along with the collectibles and events that came from the films. The magazine was published in the mid-1990s and also covered all of the upcoming film releases, like the 1997 special editions and the first prequel film leading into the new century. It highlighted the latest releases at retail for all things Star Wars, as well as the in-person activities like Star Wars Weekends at the Disney theme parks. And it continued the path blazed by Steve Sansweet's 1992 book, Star Wars From Concept to Screen to Collectible, giving the author a quarterly column in which he discussed the action figures from the original Kenner line and other Lucasfilm licensed memorabilia. Sansweet's articles, along with the ones that covered some of the more modern collectibles, provided wonderful insights into the vast world of collecting Star Wars items in the 1990s. Almost 30 years later, the stories shared in the magazine are still entertaining, and they contain a wealth of information pertaining to collecting that may never have reached the public otherwise. In the last episode, I shared 15 facts about the films that I discovered in reading Star Wars Galaxy magazine. Now I'd like to share some of the early collecting stories found in the 13 issues of the magazine as well. Let's explore the pages of Star Wars Galaxy Magazine again, through the lens of a collector. Number 1. The Saga Begins The idea for Star Wars collectibles began with the film's creator, George Lucas. As he wrote the first Star Wars film in his California office, he imagined the first tangible souvenirs that could accompany the movie-going experience about a galaxy far, far away. He said, I was sitting there all day, writing and drinking coffee, writing about Wookiees and such. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to have a Wookiee mug? I think that's because my dog, Indiana, was sort of a prototype for the Wookiee. And you're always seeing these mugs of your favorite dog. It was just something that I wanted to have personally on my desk while I was writing, rather than an idea that I could take these out and sell them and make a lot of money. It turns out Lucas wasn't the only one who wanted to drink his coffee from a Chewbacca mug. And after the film was released in May of 1977, fans and filmgoers clamored to bring mementos from the film home with them, and the Lucasfilm licensing blitz began. The California Originals Company released the Chewbacca Tankard, a tall ceramic mug, in 1977. 
It was sculpted by Jim Rumpf, who captured Chewbacca's face and expression perfectly. Chewbacca, often seen growling or in an action pose, is calm in Rumpf's sculpt, mouth closed and smiling slightly. A long piece of fur jutted out from the side of the Wookiee's head to form the tankard's handle. For fans, the design of the tankard also added to the connectivity and vibrancy of the film. Instead of simply slapping a photo of Chewbacca onto the side of a mass-produced mug, the California Originals tankard showcased the joyous and innovative design of a unique creature from a beloved sci-fi fantasy movie. One that people would want to take home. One from which George Lucas would drink coffee as he wrote his next film. The price of the tankard in 1977 was $16.00 the equivalent to $73 today. He made a fair move. Screaming about it can't help you. Have it's not wise to upset a Wookiee. But sir, nobody worries about upsetting a droid. It's because a droid don't pull people's arms out of their sockets when they lose. Wookiees are known to do that. I see your point, sir. I suggest a new strategy, R2. Let the Wookiee win. Number two. Kenner's Proposal In 1984, the designers at Kenner came up with a plan to continue the Star Wars action figure line. The film trilogy concluded a year earlier with Return of the Jedi, and it seemed unlikely that George Lucas would begin the next chapter of the franchise in the coming years. The designers had been granted the opportunity to expand their toy offerings during the run of the films with their own creations, in the forms of mini-rig vehicles. These vehicles were lower-priced options that did not appear in the films, but were created to fit within the Star Wars universe. And in the hopes of continuing the Kenner run of Star Wars toys, they presented a continuation of the story along with a proposed new wave of items to Lucasfilm. As a way to save time and money, the designers recycled parts from other figures and vehicles for many of their new ideas. And they also invented brand new characters and toys as well. With Darth Vader saved and the Emperor destroyed, Star Wars needed a new villain. So the designers created Atha Prime, known as the architect of the Clone Wars. The Clone Warriors would be Prime soldiers, the new stormtroopers. Prime would also have a massive starship called the Annihilator, described as the result of the designers mating two modified Star Destroyers from the Empire Strikes Back line. The Annihilator would also have a perch for a smaller vehicle, the Apex Invader, which would be piloted by another figure, Prime's personal pilot droid, Blue 4. Using design elements from the Death Star and the Endor Bunker, the Kenner team sketched a playset for the new line, known as the Imperial Outpost, which would serve as a base for the scattered remnants of the former Empire. The Kenner team also tried to resurrect Grand Moff Tarkin, suggesting that he had narrowly escaped the destruction of the Death Star and emerged from hiding to reclaim the remains of the Imperial military forces and they repurposed older figures and vehicles, which allowed them to utilize previously crafted parts from the Star Wars line and to transform them into entirely new toys. The Hoth Snowspeeder from The Empire Strikes Back was produced in an orange plastic and was given new cannons and functions to become a rebel-armored sandspeeder for travel on desert planets like Tatooine. 
The original AT-AT had its cargo hull shaved off, and in its place, the designers mounted an ion cannon and called it the All-Terrain Ion Cannon, or ATIC. A smaller vehicle was a cargo handler that fit in between the front slot of the original Millennium Falcon. If you've ever seen the animated series Star Wars Rebels, the cargo handler would be to the Millennium Falcon what the smaller Phantom ship was to its carrier, the Ghost. And Kenner also created a proposed character named Mongo Beefhead by kitbashing body parts and accessories from other already produced figures. Mongo was crafted from Hammerhead's arms, Squidhead's torso and legs, and Forlom's chest piece. His head was also from Squidhead, but this time it was painted brown and was turned so the squid's mandibles were pointing upward and the face was now the back of the new character's head. Two eyes were painted at the bottom of the upturned head and the center of the new face was the former spot that connected the head to Squidhead's torso, which now looked like an open mouth. Kenner's proposal for the continuation of the line was a noble attempt to keep a beloved toy series alive. Mark Bourdreau, who worked on the presentation, said the pitch to Lucasfilm was to showcase the potential of what could come next. Lucasfilm was very complimentary and appreciated the time and effort Kenner took to design and to create within the style of the Star Wars universe. But the film company ultimately decided to officially cancel the toy line in 1985. And ten years later, Kenner continued where the original designers left off, producing Star Wars figures, vehicles, and playsets again when the line was revived in 1995. Number 3. An Alien Invasion In an article titled Strange Tales of Collecting Aliens, Steve Sansweet highlighted many of the wonderful and unique creatures who appeared in the Star Wars films and in Kenner's toy line. He presented an interesting statistic, that of the 93 figures produced between 1997 and 1985, 34 were aliens and 10 were droids. Basically, half the line consisted of non-human characters, making the Star Wars run a fascinating collection for imaginative children. Number 4. What was it worth in 1995? In the same article, Sansweet provided a snapshot of what the collecting market was like for action figures and other related collectibles in the spring of 1995. I thought it would be fun to take time to share the prices with you, in the form of a little game. I'm going to mention five figures from the Star Wars line, and I want you to guess what they were worth in 1995. The first one is a favorite of collectors, the Blue Snaggletooth. Kenner created the figure for the Sears-exclusive Cantina Adventure set, basing the design on black and white photos supplied by Lucasfilm. According to Sansweet, 
50,000 blue snaggletooth figures were created before Lucasfilm made the company redesign the figure to look like the shorter creature found in the film, wearing a red jumpsuit. So back in 1995, what was the price of a loose blue snaggletooth in good condition? Was it more or less than $100? More or less than $300? The figure was worth about $75, and today it sells in the range of $350 to $450, depending on condition. And at the time, a carded red snaggletooth figure sold for $75 as well. If you had the Sears-exclusive Cantina Adventure set containing the blue snaggletooth and was still sealed, what do you think the going price was in 1995? The Cantina Adventure set sold for approximately $350. Today, sealed sets rarely show up. But when they do, the price tag for one could be in the thousands of dollars. What do you think a carded Star Wars hammerhead figure was worth back then? In 1995, you could purchase one for around $95. Now, they're worth $500 to $600, depending on condition. And finally, when Kenner released the first Jawa figure, it came with a vinyl cape. Kenner designer Mark Bordreau said that to give the smaller figure more value in the eyes of shoppers, the cheaper-looking vinyl cape was switched to a cloth cape shortly after the figure's debut. As a result, carded vinyl cape Jawas are very rare. What was the price of one in 1995? If you wanted to pick one up in the mid-90s, you'd have to pay roughly $400 for a carded Tatooine scavenger with a vinyl cape. Recently, one graded at an 85 sold for $25,000 at a Hakes auction. Number 5. Shopping the Galaxy on TV in the 90s, Star Wars collectibles were sold on television. Beginning in October of 1992, shoppers could tune in to QVC and could purchase what they saw for sale on TV by ordering over the phone. QVC, whose initials stood for Quality, Value, Choice, would host segmented theme sales that would run for an hour or two, listing the price on screen for each item that a host and the guests would discuss in glowing detail while a phone number and information lit up on a banner at the bottom of the screen. The guest for the first Star Wars QVC special was a familiar face and was destined to draw the attention of channel surfers across the country. Mark Hamill, the actor who played Luke Skywalker, pitched an exclusive Star Wars 15th anniversary sweatshirt and shared stories about working on the films. Some of the items sold that night were an autographed Mark Hamill plaque from Return of the Jedi for $91, Sigma ceramic banks featuring Chewbacca or Yoda for $31 each, the letterboxed video cassettes of the Star Wars trilogy for $100, and a garish $36 plastic Star Wars tie and suspender set that depicted various scenes from the films on celluloid. 
Steve Sansweet, who wrote the column, said he was shocked to tune in that night and to see his Star Wars book, from concept to screen to collectible, for sale on QVC that night. And QVC was a major outlet for retail. As a channel that captivated many at-home shoppers before the internet reached a mainstream audience, Sansweet estimated that a really hot sale on QVC could bring in $150,000 every hour. This is a brand new book. We are literally introducing this to the country before it jumps into the bookstores. This is called Star Wars from Concept to Screen to Collectible. And if you're serious about collecting Star Wars memorabilia or you just love the film, it's a must-have. I devoured this book. I'm, I'm anxious to look at a few things because, you know, whenever they change... Uh, an item here you see a Jawa it originally came in a mm -hmm. cloth cape and then they switched to the vinyl cape. Yep. One's going to have a different mm -hmm. value than the other and that's the fun of collecting. That is. Uh, and a lot of people have these figurines. I think Kenner, Kenner did uh, 42 million Star Wars collectibles in 1978. Is that right? Over 42 million collectibles and, and of that I think two or three million were uh, Luke and Princess Leia figurines. Wow. Yeah. And, and again, all that information right in here. Number six. What was it worth in 1995? It's time for the second part of the game, What Was It Worth in 1995? Let's take a look at some of the prices for figures from The Empire Strikes Back. If you were to buy the diminutive Yoda action figure still sealed on card in the mid-90s, what would the cost be? For reference, a blue snaggletooth was $75, and a carded vinyl cape Jawa was $400 at the time. Would a carded Yoda be more than both of them, or would the price be somewhere in the middle? The price of a carded Yoda would have been around $45 in 1995. Today, it would likely sell in the $350 to $500 range, depending on condition. The Bounty Hunters Forlom and Zuckus came out around the same time. Which of the two figures was more valuable in the middle of the decade? Was it Forlom or Zuckus? And what was the price of each carded figure? Zuckus actually was the more expensive of the two at $60. Forlom's value was around $50. Today, it is much harder to find a carded Empire Strikes Back Forlom since the figure was released in limited quantities at the end of the Empire line, and a graded example sold recently for almost $900. And if you owned a sealed Tauntaun and a sealed Wampa, which of the two boxed creatures was more valuable? The sealed Tauntaun was worth $40 back then and the Wampa was slightly more valuable, selling for $65 in 1995. Number 7. Kenner's 1997 Toy Announcement in the spring of 1997, Star Wars Galaxy magazine previewed six of the 70 figures, playsets, and vehicles that premiered at Toy Fair. Early examples, likely hand-painted hard copies, of Slave Leia, 
Bib Fortuna, the Gamorrean Guard, and Luke Skywalker in his ceremonial outfit were displayed in an article titled What's New at Kenner? The article mentioned that the new line was the number one boy's toy that year, on the 20th anniversary of Star Wars. Also appearing with the figures were the Ronto and Jawa creature set and the AT-AT that came with a driver and a commander. The toys were to be released at retail later that summer, in August of 1997. Nobody does Star Wars like the power of the Force from Kenner. Straight from the new Star Wars Special Edition come the creature figure two-packs. Now you're a sand trooper aboard the massive reptilian dewback searching for rebel droids on Tatooine. Next, enter Mos Eisley as you and the Jawas command the Ronto. This beast of burden carries a heavy load, but only when it wants to. And waiting beneath the Millennium Falcon, Jabba the Hutt, as Han Solo bargained for your life with his vile gangster. Nobody does Star Wars like the power of the Force. Right here, Jabba. Two-packs come with exclusive figure. Other figures and vehicles each sold separately from Kenner. Number 8. Fan Questions Answered At the end of the magazine was a column called Collector's Comlink, in which Steve Sansweet would answer questions pertaining to collecting. In a 1997 issue, a fan wrote in with two incredibly interesting questions that I had to include in this episode. In the first question, the fan mentioned visiting the Australian Toll Toys factory and noticed a desert sales gift vehicle box in the trash. This was no ordinary box, though. It had a painted scene and a Revenge of the Jedi logo in place of what would eventually be changed to Return of the Jedi. The fan asked what something like that would be worth today. Steve's response to the first question was that it would be worth $200 or more. There wasn't any more information given about the piece, but it is likely that it was an unproduced box flat or mock-up for the vehicle, and I don't know if any others ever turned up. For his second question, the Australian fan asked if Kenner ever considered making a Darth Vader action figure with a removable helmet, and if the company was considering making one for the then-current Power of the Force line. Steve answered yes to both questions. It was really interesting that Kenner had attempted making one after Return of the Jedi premiered, but the company apparently had trouble making a helmet durable enough and yet thin enough to encapsulate Anakin Skywalker's head. At the time, Sansweet ended his answer with, Let's cross our fingers and hope they figure out a solution. And Kenner finally created the perfect sculpt for a removable helmet Vader and released the figure a year later in 1998. Number 9. What was it worth in 1995? Let's return to the earlier game, What Was It Worth in 1995? For Part 3, I'm going to ask you questions on values for aliens from Return of the Jedi. Ready? Okay, here we go. Three of the more well-known alien offerings from Return of the Jedi were creature-based sets. Kenner released the Jabba the Hutt action playset in 1983, the nine-inch-tall Rancor monster in 1984, and Cy Snoodles and the Rebo Band set that same year. What do you think the sealed Jabba the Hutt playset was selling for in 1995? How about a sealed Rancor? 
And finally, what was the going rate for a sealed Psy Snoodles set? Do you have the answers in your head? Great. Of the three creature-based toys, which one was the most valuable in the mid-90s? Was it the Jabba, the Rancor, or the Rebo set? If you guessed the Rebo band, you're right. The Jabba was selling for $40, the Rancor's price was slightly higher at $55, and the Rebo band set had a price tag of $75 in 1995. Today, all three are extremely desirable, especially if they're sealed in their original boxes, and each will likely fetch between $500 and $900 in today's market, and graded examples could reach into the four figures. Number 10. Speeder Recall? According to the magazine, in the summer of 1996, a rumor was circulating that Kenner's new speeder bike toy contained lead paint. The company publicly addressed rumors regarding the Power of the Force vehicle, saying, There is no recall of this product. There never has been one. This item does not contain lead paint. We at Kenner and Hasbro Inc. take product safety very seriously, and we conduct extensive safety testing on all of our toys. Our products meet and typically exceed federal as well as toy industry safety requirements. Number 11. Chasing the Coins Today, a number of Star Wars collectors hunt the coins that came packed on cardbacks with the Power of the Force figures. In an article covering Star Wars stamps and coins, Sansweet shared some interesting information about why many of these coins were so rare. For the line, Kenner originally planned to release 62 unique coins with the new and reissued figures that would appear on the Power of the Force cardbacks, which would later expand to come with all 92 figures. Fans and collectors were able to obtain the coins through mail-away orders and by purchasing carded figures containing the brushed aluminum souvenirs. However, by 1985, Kenner prepared to cancel production of its Star Wars figures, and only half of the coins created were released on cardbacks. And while sending in proofs of purchase would net a collector a randomly chosen coin, it would be very hard to complete a full set of 62. Fans wrote to Kenner requesting the opportunity to purchase a full set. Lucasfilm gave Kenner permission to sell the remaining supply at cost, but forbid the toy company to promote the sale. Instead, a full set would only be available to those who wrote in specifically asking for it. And the price for a set of 62 collector coins from Kenner? $29. At the time the article was published, a full set still in its original shipping bags, would likely sell for $2,000 or more. Today, some of the rarer coins can sell for more than double that price by themselves. A complete set would likely run in the five-figure range and is very difficult to obtain. Even tougher is the promotional 63rd coin that was to accompany the Power of the Force coin holder. The coin holder was never released publicly, and only a few of the 63rd coins were ever produced. 
The coin contains the words Star Wars at the top and Jedi Knight at the bottom, and two hands holding an ignited saber are etched into the center of it. Coin collecting and hunting a full set could take years. And at the end of the article, Gus Lopez, who runs the collecting site the Star Wars Collector's Archive, suggested trying to find a full set to buy, saving time and reducing the stress that comes with the hunt. Coming from the farthest reaches of space are the most awe-inspiring, the most desired gifts of the galaxies. They are the Star Wars Collector's Coins. Every Star Wars action figure comes with one. Dynamic graphic front, action story back, over 60 different coins in the collection. But the best is each and every Star Wars action figure comes with one. Every figure? Every figure. Look for the Star Wars collector's coins in your neighborhood. Number 12. A rare Canadian collectible. In an issue devoted to the space heroine Leia Organa, Star Wars Galaxy magazine also spotlighted some of the collectibles of the Princess of Alderaan. And Sansweet gave insight into the history of one of the rarest Leia-related items to hit store shelves. In 1979, Kenner Canada created and sold the Leia Utility Belt Accessory Set for children. Packed in a black box with the line's signature racetrack logo, it came with a white plastic belt bearing the Star Wars logo in black. Additionally, it included a wristwatch, a communicator, and a black pistol-shaped blaster that fired rubber darts. The set was produced without the approval of Lucasfilm, and when Kenner appealed to sell it in the States as well, Lucasfilm took notice and promptly ended production of it. As a result, a complete set in a sealed box is incredibly difficult to find and was commanding a value of $350 on the collector's market in 1997. Bringing home one today in the same condition would likely cost you somewhere in the four-figure range. From now on, you do as I tell you, okay? Will somebody get this big walking carpet out of my way? Number 13. What was it worth in 1995? The final segment of the game, What Was It Worth in 1995, focuses on the end of Kenner's original trilogy run, The Power of the Force Alien Figures. If you were to pick up a carded Barada figure in 1995, what would you have to pay for the Skiffguard character? More or less than $100. How about $200? A carded Barada's value was around $45 in 1995. How much would you have paid for a carded Amana Man from the Power of the Force line? The large green and yellow scaly creature with the skull-adorned staff. More or less than a Barada. Amana Man was one of the pricier figures in the Kenner line by that time, commanding a price tag of $125, almost triple the price of the Barada figure. And finally, in his article, Sansweet mentioned one of his personal favorite aliens, a denizen of Jabba's palace named Yakface. Power of the Force carded Yakface figures were extremely rare and were very hard to come by in the United States. If you were to buy one in 1995, what would you have paid for it? The value of a carded Yakface in 1995 was equivalent to a carded vinyl cape Jawa, around $400. 
Today, a high-grade example would likely sell in the $10,000 to $20,000 range. Number 14. Hunting the Galaxy for Cards In the past year, prices for the original top Star Wars cards have skyrocketed, with some selling for thousands of dollars. And while most collectors focus on snatching up a 1977 Luke Skywalker rookie card from the first set, some of the cards produced in the 90s are true collectible rarities. Topps created a new line of cards in 1993, known as Star Wars Galaxy. For the 1994 second edition, the company released a few promotional cards, and two of them quickly became sought-after gems. The first was a promo card done by artist Jim Starlin. Starlin's image depicted a biker scout being swarmed and attacked by Ewoks. In the promo version, the Ewok around his neck is about to plunge a knife into the scout. However, when the image was used for card number 266 in the series' standard run, Topps digitally removed the knife from the Ewok's hand. Yet the rarest and most desirable card from that series is one that was pulled before it reached production. Promo card P3 was drawn by John Room and showed a creature from Yoda's species worshipping a Yoda-like statue. When Lucasfilm saw the unapproved image, the company halted production on the card. Only a few examples survived, making it heavily desirable to complete us of the 1994 set. And decades later, the elusive P3 card is still popular. One recently sold at auction on eBay for $760. Number 15. Super Live Memorabilia The final issue of Star Wars Galaxy Magazine spotlighted some of the specialty collectibles, merchandise that came from attractions and events associated with the Star Wars franchise. In 1993, Feld Productions launched the George Lucas Super Live Adventure Show in Japan. It was an arena-based tour comprised of sequences from the Star Wars films, as well as from other Lucas-led movies. And while the tour never made it to the U.S., the merchandise from the show is some of the more fascinating pieces to come out of the early 90s. In his article, Sansweet notes that the show employed a type of peer pressure to get audiences to buy items during the performance. Noting that an upcoming lightsaber segment would enlist audience participation, parents would run to the nearest kiosk to buy toy lightsabers for their children. The George Lucas Super Live Adventure Show was a treasure trove of Star Wars collectibles. The rarest item appeared to be an announcement poster in gold lettering, and of which 28 were printed for the show. And in addition to the posters and lightsabers, an attendee could purchase from a wide variety of collectible categories. Light-up blasters, droid-based alarm clocks, apparel with logos and Star Wars characters, program books, ceramic and plastic cups, and a 12-inch detailed Yoda doll with a burlap cloak were some of the offerings from this show. The George Lucas Super Live Adventure Show was a unique and exciting event, and the collectibles have carried the memory of it into the next century. 
It was a tribute to the Star Wars films and fandom, and to the man responsible for bringing the Star Wars story to life. Tomorrow Impulse, George Lucas Super Live Adventure. So that's a tiny sampling of the kind of collecting stories and information Star Wars Galaxy magazine provided during its 13-issue run in the mid-1990s. Before the internet became a mainstream resource, the magazine was one of the few outlets that supplied collectors with a scope of what was available, what was on the horizon, and the current market prices. On behalf of collectors everywhere, I'd like to thank Steve Sansweet and the team at Star Wars Galaxy Magazine for the insight and advice they shared with us. Steve was one of the earliest and most ardent collectors who helped to shape a community, and a lot of the information we have today is due to the work that he put into collecting. And I'd like to thank my friend Ryan Humblehorder for kindly sharing these magazines with me. They were so enjoyable to read, and I wanted to repay his kindness by sharing some of the fascinating facts and stories with you. This episode was just as much fun to create as the previous one, and I really learned so much from this series on the Star Wars Galaxy magazine. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Star Wars Prototypes and Production. With your help, the podcast has reached listeners in more than 50 countries across six continents. It's been a real joy to explore different facets of collecting this year. From the toy trips, to the history of Kenner and Hasbro, to the production process of making the action figures we love. My goal has been to provide the best possible experience for you with each episode. And I hope the podcast has resonated with you in some way. Did you enjoy looking back at the state of Star Wars in the 1990s? I find that era fascinating. I think collectors often perceive it to be a downtime for the franchise, but it was such a fertile landscape when it came to cultivating Star Wars and building on what Lucas began. I've always been drawn to rarities, and if I had known that vintage Kenner prototypes were available to collectors during that time, I believe I would have started collecting them in the early 1990s. And I wish I had known about Star Wars Galaxy magazine. I'm sure it would have been my collecting companion back then. And I hope the podcast has served as a companion during your collecting journey so far. I look forward to many more adventures with you on Star Wars, Prototypes and Production.